How does understanding our learners help us to design better instruction? How can we help students use what they are learning in the real world? What role can virtual learning and artificial intelligence play in designing more effective instruction? These are some of the questions we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated, the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ann Fency, and in this episode, I speak with Matt Schmidt, a researcher in learning experience design and a developer of interactive educational technologies, who shares some of what he has learned from his research. Ready, set, activate. Dr. Matthew Schmidt is an associate professor at the University of Florida in the Educational Technology Program. Dr. Schmidt is an educational researcher and developer of advanced technology-based learning interventions. An award-winning researcher and developer, his design-based research focuses on three-dimensional virtual learning environments, mobile learning, and online learning interventions. In addition to being an expert in learning experience design, Matthew Schmidt is a vintage scooter enthusiast, a proud father, and a scholar who is excited to be in the field of learning technologies. Matt Schmidt, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for having me, Anne. And um, so let's start with learning experience design. Can you tell me a little bit about that and the kinds of things that you study there? Sure. So um, I guess I could start by just kind of providing a backdrop of how I came to uh, study learning Mm -hmm. experience design. And um, I was a graduate student at the University of Missouri uh, in in their labs where uh, they had a number of grad students who were, you know, kind of working on grant projects and whatnot. And within those labs, they had a lab called the Information Experience Laboratory, which was a usability lab. At the time, that was very innovative uh, and something that you didn't see a lot of in educational technology or information science contexts. And I was fortunate enough to be brought on board to help build the lab and then to learn how to conduct usability research. Uh, And this kind of led to me um, exploring that as a central part of my identity as a researcher. Mm -hmm. And um, I continued to do usability research. I continue to do usability research to this day. Um, What began to cause some tension, however, was that most usability research focuses on technological usability, you know, how easy it is to use a system, whether it functions as expected, whether the features are satisfying. This is great for general usability. If you're looking at product design, say you want to build an app or if you want to create a, um, you know, like a database front end or something like that. But when you begin to apply that in learning contexts, you start to see that there are areas where that just is not sufficient. And that's because when you're working in learning contexts, you don't have just a general user, you have a specific class of users and that's learners primarily, but you also have instructors and you have the instructional designers who are using technologies, you have um, instructional developers, you have maintainers, uh, administrators, 
Um, and those specific classes of users um, have kind of very specific types of needs and preferences, right? Mm -hmm. On top of that, uh, you have a very specific class of technologies. You're not using any technology for any purpose, but instead you're using learning technologies for a specific purpose, and that's to uh, engage in learning activities. Mm -hmm. So this focus on kind of general technological usability begins to fall apart when you get into the nuts and bolts of doing uh, learning technology uh, development and evaluation. So what you're seeing is um, a need to focus not only on the technological aspects, but also on the pedagogical aspects mm, yep. of these learning environments, because we don't just build learning environments um, devoid of any sort of pedagogical theory or um, idea of how this is how people are going to learn in this environment. But instead, we approach it with kind of our own instructional theory of how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, and we embed that or we embody that in the design of the system. So that pedagogical piece is really important. And on top of that, we also know that learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. Learning happens within a broader ecosystem that considers um, the socio and the contextual variables that a learner is um, embedded within. Yeah. So for example, when we think about, you know, I'm using Canvas to do an online course, it's not me sitting at my computer interacting with my computer, it's me working through my computer to engage with other human beings who also mm -hmm. want to learn. Yeah. Uh, and they are embedded in their contexts, whether they're in San Antonio or Honolulu or New York, and we're all engaging kind of collectively in a, in a task. So we have social, we have contextual uh, or, or cultural, if you will. Uh, we have pedagogical and we have technological factors that all kind of play a role here. Um, and so that is essentially how I came into this world of learning experience design is by conducting usability research, usability or user experience-based product design, uh, developing learning environments, developing learning technologies, applying what I knew from fields of UX, human-computer interaction, usability research, and kind of realizing that we need to kind of stir this pot a little bit in order to uh, come up with the right recipe for how this is going to work in a learning context. And so this is where we came to learning experience design. We were not characterizing it as such until um, around 2018 when I began to work with uh, Dr. Yvonne Earnshaw, uh, Dr. Andrew Tofik, and Dr. Isa Yanka uh, to develop a edited volume around uh, learner and user experience research. Um, and this is a book that's available uh, at no cost on the EdTech Books platform, where we explored this phenomenon more in depth um, and in a way kind of um, put a stake in the ground in our field so that we now kind of have, uh, let's say, a peg that we can hang our hat on mm -hmm. uh, that's called learning experience design. And so uh, once that came out, we uh, began to explore some of the gaps a little bit more closely and to think more about the theory behind it, uh, as well as to think about how can we make these methods 
more approachable for instructional and learning designers. So that's well, how I got sounds, to where I'm at. It sounds like it's really it's taking the focus off the technology and it's really putting it on the learner and then the experience of learning, like the processes of learning. Yeah, so I know that this is the um, Learner Engagement Podcast. And mm -hmm. so um, I, I'm not an expert in learner engagement, but um, I do understand kind of some of the principles around it. And my understanding is that learner engagement is in many ways based on um, cognitive energy that's placed into learning as well as the effective factors that go into learning as well. Um, and that these are influenced by learner characteristics as well as by uh, the learning experience itself. Uh, and so when we understand that, we, we also understand that placing the human at the center of the design process uh, is really critical in mm. terms of um, developing that learning experience so that when the cognitive and affective energy goes into learning, that the experience can be optimized such that, let's say, the, the interface doesn't get in the way mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, learners don't get lost in a system um, or they feel uh, like they're having an engaging and interesting and enjoyable experience, right? So all of these things kind of play a role. So but what does that look like? Can you give me some examples of like what you would look for in terms of learner um, engagement through your learning experience design lens? Well, typically, um, I, I think that learner engagement is not necessarily like a central focus to the work that I'm doing, but it's something that I'm considering in that I'm focusing on the learning experience and I'm focusing on uh, creating um, creating an optimized environment that allows for uh, learning to happen in such a way that the technology becomes as invisible as possible, mm -hmm. um, while at the same time allowing for the technology affordances that exist to kind of amplify or, or transform the learning that's happening, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the way that learner engagement plays a role is it's one of many factors that I'm considering when I'm engaging in a design context or when I'm embarking on uh, some kind of a new product design. So what does that look like in practice? Well, one of the things that we wanna make sure if we want to engage a learner, right? Well, one thing that we know is that on the affective side, we certainly don't want that affect to kind of, if we're thinking about a needle that we're trying to move one way or the other, we don't want that needle to dip into the negative, right? That is going to result in all kinds of detrimental outcomes or undesirable outcomes that we just don't want. Uh, you don't want a, a learner to have a miserable learner yeah. experience, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that anyone who's done any sort of technology-mediated learning can, right off the top of their head, come up with three or four examples of an utterly miserable learning experience that they've had yeah. in, in some kind of an online learning context. Where what the about desirable difficulties? What would, what would that look like? Desirable difficulties? Yeah. 
Well, the desirable difficulties shouldn't have to do with the technology itself. You don't want the technology to be difficult exactly, to yeah. get in your way to cause increased cognitive load where what you want to be doing is you want to be focusing on the task of learning, not the task of finding that darn PowerPoint presentation yes. <laughs> or getting to the video yep. that I'm supposed to watch yep. or something like that. The difficulty should really center around learning because learning is not a spectator sport. It's something that you must be engaged in and learning by virtue of the task itself is a difficult task, right? But that doesn't mean that it should be unpleasant, right? You yeah. can have a pleasantly challenging task. For example, mm. like for me, you know, I like learning um, new uh ways to analyze data, right? So I go into like my my R environment and I toil away at figuring out how to do something. And I find that to be incredibly interesting and engaging. And but hard. It's also, but it's hard. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's super hard. But it's not like I'm doing it in a way that makes it difficult. So this is a good example. Hmm. You know, I've got I'm not going straight to the command line in a console and you know, typing away commands, you know, in this kind of obscure way. Instead, I'm putting a front end onto it and I'm I'm engaging in it in such a way that I could just click a couple of checkboxes and drag and drop some things and import an Excel file and then do do the work that I have to do instead of having to kind of do all of those pieces manually. Yeah. Because those to me are, those are things that don't necessarily help me achieve my learning goal or kind of the outcome that I want to have, which is of course, you know, get some output in terms of, you know, do I have statistical significance or not, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of an example of, of uh, just what we're talking about, making sure that we can get the technology out of the way yeah. and allow for the learning to be as optimized as it can be in the technology context. So really using the technology, like, for what it's for, to actually, like, facilitate rather than, you know, another thing that the learner has to do well that's an interesting debate let's say because mm -hmm. there are some people in our field who might say that the only thing technology does is serve as a conduit to deliver content to a learner and there are others who might say that technology is potentially transformative and it can change mm -hmm. the way that we learn and it can actually influence learning uh, both in positive and negative ways. Um, so whether the technology facilitates learning, it's an interesting word because facilitate could be, you know, here's, I'm delivering you content and mm -hmm. it's up to you to kind of figure it all out. Or facilitate learning could be something like an adaptive system that based on usage changes, you know, it might increase in difficulty, de decrease in difficulty, provide additional scaffolds, uh, things of that nature. Yeah. So facilitation can mean different things depending on which side of that debate you might fall. Mm, yeah. So I was thinking more like your, your focus as the learner, you, the, the technology starts to disappear and you're starting to more focus on the content. And so, which is really interesting that you do a lot in like virtual reality and virtual worlds. And mm -hmm. because that kind of seems like the goal is to completely immerse and you know, forget that you're using technology, but that you're really experiencing this. And 
I, I was watching a, a talk that you gave at the Open University um, in England, and you, you mentioned something about this assumption that greater immersion leads to better learning and more transfer, and that maybe you're not seeing that research um, you know, play out in the research. And to me, that, that just seems logical, but I know that a lot of our things that seem logical about learning are not true, like that learning should be easy. No, it shouldn't be. It should be challenging. So what are you seeing in the research about what does immersion do to, um, to learning? Well, um, it's not to put too fine a point on it, but I think that my point when I gave that talk was more that um, more immersion can lead to greater transfer of what is learned in a virtual environment to transferring that learning into the real world. And what I would say is the research on that does not necessarily bear out. So, and, and this is true of nearly any kind of educational research or learning research. What is learned in one context does not automatically transfer or generalize to disparate contexts. Yeah. That's something that has to be intentionally designed for and that many designers tend to take for granted. So let's say that we're learning something with an app, we're learning something through virtual reality, or we're learning something in a canvas or a Blackboard-based learning environment. Just because we learn it within that context doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be able to go uh, onto, let's say, a warehouse floor or a office environment yeah. and be able to apply the skill that we learned about. Instead, there's going to need to be some sort of a scaffold that allows us to uh, intentionally apply that knowledge in a practical way, uh, whether that be on the job coaching or having a mentor, or I'm thinking of office space where um, there's a printer and uh, all of the office workers get angry with the printer to the point that they yes. take it into a field <laughs> and beat it up with a baseball bat. And I'm thinking to myself, that's a learning problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's something where, you know, if you had uh, more knowledgeable peers who would be able to scaffold the process of using the printer, perhaps that printer wouldn't be dead today. <laughs> but that would not be nearly as comedic or interesting yeah. <laughs> as beating up a printer with a baseball bat. And I'm sure there's many people who can think of some canvas or blackboard courses that if they were physical things, they might want to beat them up with a baseball bat yes. as well. Yeah, and that research was specifically about people with autism, and which, you know, for a lot of people with disabilities, transfer is a particular challenge. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear some of your ideas about, like, what, what kinds of things, like you mentioned, you know, job aids, on-the-job training, things like that, but for, I think for all of us, one of our goals with teaching and learning is that we want our students to be able to take what we're doing in the classroom or in the virtual space and apply it in their real lives. So like, what are some other ideas that you have for how to make that transfer happen? We've been working for, I wanna say six years on developing a scaffolding strategy that moves a learner uh, with intellectual disabilities or um, simply neurodivergence uh, from uh, not having a skill to acquiring a skill to practicing a skill in a safe, con completely controllable environment mm -hmm. to then applying that skill in the real world. So kind of a four stage process where we introduce, we model, we allow for safe 
kind of structured practice and mm -hmm. then we move that into the real world and we practice it in the real world um, and the easy part believe it or not is everything that's associated with technology prior to applying in the real world so for example with acquiring the skill, you wanna introduce it first. We use some evidence-based practices for that, such as social narratives. Some people call these social stories. Mm -hmm. We then move to video modeling and you can do mid video modeling in a number of different ways, but we're using 360 degree videos, also known as spherical videos, also known as immersive videos. Um, these are essentially the videos that you can put on a headset or you can uh, mouse around, uh, scroll through the video, like move, mm -hmm. move your point of view around with it or with your, with your mobile phone, you can kind of move your mobile phone around to get a different view of the space that you're in. And we model a skill using a 360 degree immersive technology to kind of put the learner into the context where that skill is happening. And then we developed a um, fully immersive virtual reality environment where learners then are able to practice the skill that was modeled in a very kind of controlled way um, with few distractions and um, kind of devoid of many of the uh, challenges that might exist in the real world. And then slowly over time, we can introduce more complexity such as loud noises, increased traffic, more uh, people in, in the virtual environment, the virtual space and so on. Um, and then we move that into the real world. And what we found is when you go from that, you know, that nice scaffold from social stories to video modeling to immersive practice, that works quite well. Mm -hmm. but then when you kind of throw the child into the pool and expect yeah. them to swim, <laughs> when you take them out of those technology mediated environments and expect it to happen in the real world, it simply doesn't happen as a matter of course, but instead mm -hmm. it requires scaffolds, much like what I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. you, it's either you need to have a facilitator who's able to help that person apply it and make sense of how this is going to work now. Um, or what we're interested in exploring now is uh, perhaps using augmented reality to kind of serve okay. as a, an in-between yeah. where we're practicing skills in the real world, but we are also able to overlay uh, digital supports um, using some sort of augmented technology. So again- oh, that's really cool. Those, yeah. yeah. And that's a challenge because the wearable augmented technologies right now are clunky and huge yeah. yep. and expensive and using a cell phone to kind of, you know, look around and see what those digital overlays might be is also not an ideal situation. But- that's the tech that we're working with. And that's kind of where we are. Mm. This sounds a little bit like the, are you familiar with the 4C ID model? Yeah. Yeah, where you, it's very intentional about how you're scaffolding people through the process of learning. And um, I, I think sometimes we forget as educators, we, we just wanna immerse people into what they're learning. We forget that we, ha we have to provide the supports there for this, the student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then what is like, if you're designing those experiences, um, how, can you, how can you plan for uh, learning engagement in your design a practice? And does that, change based on you know the age of the learner and the the context of the instructional modality well i mean 
yes, yeah. <laughs> it does. Because um, when you're starting with, you know, if you're if you're engaging in a learning experience design approach, then you start with with the human in the center of the design process. So instead of starting with technology or necessarily with a educational problem, you're gonna start with the human to kind of try to negotiate what are the needs, what are the preferences, what are the mm -hmm. goals, et cetera. And from that, you know, bringing your own perspective in as a professional or an instructional designer or learning designer or whatever, you can map some of the, you know, gaps in the literature or research needs or educational problems onto that. And it's a bit of a negotiative process. But in terms of, um, whether uh, considerations of learner engagement might change depending on different learner profiles, absolutely. Yeah. So, for example, you know, if we were going to um, be in an early childhood context, we are going to be focusing on uh, much different. I, I, for me, for example, I'd be thinking very hard about the affective component there. Yeah. Um, of course, the cognitive component matters, but that affective component, in my view, particularly in a technology mediated context, is incredibly important. Um, and to keep learners engaged there. So if you, for example, were to go take a look at PBS Kids, mm -hmm. and take a, they, they are outstanding learning designers. Oh, they are, it's amazing. <laughs> they also kind of have more money than God, at least, yes. <laughs> you know, compared to many learning design yeah. contexts. So they're able to do some really interesting things. Um, and as such, you can see their outcomes are, are just outstanding. Yeah. Um, and if you take a look at the designs and the way that they present information and their pacing, their structuring, their sequencing, uh, and the, the um, pedagogical agents that they use, the voices that they use, everything, so much of that is focused around kind of socio-emotional competence mm. um, and not necessarily on what we might consider to be more, you know, academic skills or you know, focusing more on that cognitive component. So um, that's one example of how we might, you know, think about um, being able to tune our approach to um, our learners. Mm -hmm. But that's, of course, something that you would have to, uh, if you're starting with that learner, you would, you would want to do some research to kind of understand who that learner is within a particular, um, I would say, uh, sociocultural context. Mm. Now, if we go all the way up to adults, one area where I spend a lot of time is with transition-aged adults. So this is, you know, transition starts around 14, ends around 22. And the idea is to move adults into the workforce or post-secondary ed, mm -hmm. you know, preparing adults for uh, life as adults. Uh, and focusing on the needs at that time, I mean, from 14 to 18, there's a tremendous range of uh, maturity that happens over that time. And then from 18 to 22, uh, again, you've got just this, this huge uh, range of, of development that mm. happens at that time. Um, so being able to attune a particular learning approach to the needs of a learner um, embedded in a socio-cultural context, uh, and thinking about their their um, pedagogical needs, and also bearing in mind their goals uh, and uh, their needs and their preferences, all of that you've got kind of this complex mess is what we call it. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And so, for example, here's here's one where we were supposed to build a um, we built a symptom monitoring tool for uh, kids who've experienced a mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, that could be a concussion. It could be something more serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is uh, traditionally we want to keep people in bed in a dark room uh, away from other people and just allow them to heal. Mm-hmm. And that leads to some pretty bad outcomes, depression, uh, unhappiness, yeah. social isolation, yeah. and so on. Yeah. So the idea is to incrementally, gradually return people to activities uh, in a way that it, um, allows them to maintain uh, better social ties and so on. So we yeah. developed this tool that would allow them to do that in kind of a gradual way. And uh, one of the things that we did was we used anime characters to kind of present the information. Oh, um, nice. And uh, you know, we were borrowing very heavily influences from Studio Ghibli. Uh, so if you've seen any of the you know, Nausicaa or Spirited Away or, or Totoro movies, like we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're absolutely pulling from yeah. <laughs> those for inspiration. Um, but what we learned are much more engaging for, for the children. Yeah. Well, that's what we're thinking is we're thinking, let's make something that's engaging and that kids of this age are going to find cool. And from our initial focus groups, yeah, this was spot on. However, there's a big difference between a 14 or a 16 year old boy than there is between a 17 or an 18 year old boy. Uh, And we have, you know, we had one 18 year old boy come in, I should say young man, uh, who is getting ready to join the army um, and go do army things. Mm -hmm. And he is engaging with a learning environment that has cutesy anime characters telling him that he really needs to, you know, take it easy uh, with his, his mild traumatic brain injury. And he's like, he said, this is, this is garbage. <laughs> this has, this has absolutely no relevance to me yeah. whatsoever. You know, I am, I'm getting ready to join the army. You know, he's kind of like gung ho, yeah. uh, macho dude. Um, and he, he's wanting to just kind of brush off that he has had a serious injury and kind of, you know, walk it off if you yeah. will. <laughs> And just, you know, I'll be fine. I'll be okay. And this kind of approach that we had developed, not the right approach for him. Yeah. And I think that that just kind of shows, yes, absolutely. There are going to be different considerations for different learners at different stages of development. Mm. Uh, And that gets really tricky when you are in developmental stages where so much development happens over a very short amount of time. For example, after 24, designing something uh, for an adult uh, think about grad school, online course design. Um, if you're able to hit on an effective design, chances are that's going to work for a pretty broad group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but a one size fits all approach for, let's say, you know, 14 through 22, probably not the right approach. Yeah. 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 So really starting with your learner in mind and really understanding their, their needs and interests. Right. And spending a lot of time with actual learners and not developing an understanding of your learners through some proxy. For example, you know, going to um, databases of grades, for example, or Mm -hmm. um, 
going through kind of clearing houses of um, let's say IEPs or needs that are that are mm -hmm. uh, identified in that way and so on, but actually going to human beings yeah. and having interactions with human beings. Now that's not to say that those other approaches don't have their place and that they can't inform on some level. It's just that at some point, there is a critical need to address the human beings who are going to be using systems that you design. Mm. And as learning designers, we are all product designers. I've, I've spoken with so many people who say, I don't develop products. I just, I just do e-learning. But developing e-learning is developing a product that's going to be consumed by humans. Mm -hmm. Developing a syllabus is developing a product that is going to be encountered and interpreted by human beings. Mm -hmm. And if you are able to get a read on how human beings may interpret that and how you may be able to create an optimized, engaging, appealing experience for that human being who, who accesses that product that you've developed, then guess what? You're engaging in a design of a learning experience. You're engaging in learning experience design. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about uh, the UDL approach, Universal Design for Learning, mm -hmm. is beginning with that learner profile. And, you know, like I, I have a template when I'm teaching universal design for learning, you know, that the students then work with each individual student to fill out this template about what my interests are, my strengths, my weaknesses, you know, and it then once they understand each individual learner, they're much better able to create the learning experiences that will engage those students. Yeah, there are some very profound similarities between learning experience, designing learning experiences and um, design for all or, or UDL. Mm, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So now I have three questions that we ask all of our guests. Mm -hmm. So first, what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you have experienced? One of the challenges when you're working in informal contexts versus an informal versus formal contexts is uh, the idea of carrots and sticks. So working in higher ed, working in K through 12, you have sticks as well as carrots and those sticks are typically grades. Yep. If you don't perform well, then your grades will drop. If yep. you don't log into the system and do your online coursework, then you will not pass the test. Then you will not get an A. But now let's take that idea out of a formal learning context where you have sticks and move it into an informal learning context where all you have are carrots, right? <laughs> How do you capture and hold a learner's attention to the point that they are motivated and engaged enough to continue to use a product as intended mm. for the appropriate amount of dosage? So by that, I, I work in medical context for, yeah. <laughs> uh, for some of my work. And if you are using, for example, a psychoeducational intervention, then there's an assumption that you need to complete, let's say, you know, 30 to 80% of this intervention in order to have an optimal outcome mm -hmm. uh, on whatever kind of symptoms it is that you that you're focusing on. And the problem here, and this has been hugely exacerbated during COVID, is once you've developed it, 
uh, gone through a fantastic learning design uh, process. Uh, you know, you've done your usability testing, you've done your focus groups. By all measures, it looks like this is an engaging, appealing, and efficient uh, learning experience. Mm-hmm. But when the rubber hits the road, you're asking parents and you're asking kids to do yet another thing mm-hmm. on top of everything else that's going on. And how do you continue to, or how do you get them to continue to log in, track their symptoms, log in, yeah. go through a uh, a learning module, uh, log in, have a telehealth session with a therapist? That's a huge challenge. So mm-hmm. there is um, an area that is open for uh, further exploration. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and then I hear a lot of uh, faculty complain about if there's no grade attached to it, the student doesn't do it. And, you know, then now there's this whole uh, exploration of ungrading and what that does to learning. And yeah, so you're taking away all the sticks and now all you have is carrots. So uh, I'm really interested to, to see a lot of those those discussions, um, you know, where where some of that research leads us, because, you know, particularly with with adult learners, which is what I mostly focus on, it's education is not compulsory at that point. They can get up and walk out at any time. A lot of them are held there because they paid money to go there. And yes, they do care about the grade because it impacts, you know, their job or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. for the most part, you need a lot more carrots for adults than you do <laughs> than you do for kids because yeah, you're you're right. You don't have those those sticks in there. Right. So I, I like that that way of putting it. Um, so my next question is about the future. What should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that's not fully being addressed yet? I mean, the big, the, the big push and the big trend right now in education, particularly at the University of Florida, is um, going to be artificial intelligence. Thinking about different applications of artificial intelligence in education. And there's, there are a number of hot areas right now mm-hmm. in uh, education where people believe there's a role for AI. Mm-hmm. In terms of learner engagement and AI, I believe that one of the things, I mean, one of the things we know about adults is that their learning needs to be incredibly efficient. Mm-hmm. And adults bring a wealth of knowledge to the table that is oftentimes completely ignored in online courses. Yes. And so I see things like competency-based education and adaptive systems that incorporate some form of AI to create a customized learning experience as having tremendous promise in terms of learner engagement. Because if you're forcing an adult to slog through something where they already have enough competency to at least perform uh, in their in their workplace or with whatever their goals are, uh, then there really is no need to continue to push them to do that. And yet, with a one size fits all yep. approach to education, um, you know, as we push people through that assembly line, you know, you can't skip any parts of that assembly line. You know, everyone has to get the same yeah. um, the same dosage, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that everyone has the same learning needs. So I see that as being one area that is ripe for um, further huh. exploration yeah. uh, is AI. Wow, that's really cool. I'm going to have to, I'm going to put that on my radar now too. 
Yeah. So as we wrap up, my final question is, what is the one thing you want people to remember from this conversation about learner engagement? You know, I think that um, if, if I can, if, if I could encourage uh, listeners to walk away from this with anything, it would be to, uh, to start with the learner and then continually reference the learner, to come back to the learner and make the learner central to design efforts, to be thinking about a human being who is encountering and making sense of information uh, that, that is presented to them. Um, and that designer intent does not always uh, translate into a learning experience that is effective, efficient, or appealing. Mm -hmm. The only way that you as a designer can know if what you have designed is effective, efficient, or appealing is to put a design in front of a learner and see how it is going to be used in context and to try to get it in front of the actual learners who are going to be using your system, not necessarily just you know, your colleague down the hall yeah. or some you know, college students who you're able to, to, to bring in. So really to vet your designs um, iteratively mm. with human beings who are going to be using them. Yeah, so putting the learner at the center. You're a man after my own heart. <laughs> So thank you so much for joining us today and for this great conversation. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Anne. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Learner Engagement Activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ian Fency with sound editing and production by Ian Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org.